Hi, welcome to another episode of Silk and Steel Podcast. This is going to be a new episode that's a supplement to the new Chinese history podcast I just started. Uh, for this purpose, I invited an expert on population genetics, uh, Mr. Razib Khan. Welcome to the show, Razib. Hey, how's it going, Carl? It's great to be on. Uh, thank you, thank you. Um, I had a great pleasure um, guesting on your show, the Brown Pounded Podcast, which I do recommend uh, people to check out, especially for people who are interested in South Asian related issues. Mm -hmm. And Razib is also I don't I, I'm you can probably do a better job of introduce yourself, Razib. <laughs> so why don't you go? Sure. So um, as uh, Carl. Uh you know, implied. Um, I run a blog called Brown Pundits, and I have a podcast called uh, The Browncast. Associated with that, I also run a blog called Gene Expression. And um, for my day job, I also have a podcast called The Insight, which is on genetics and evolution. Um, my interests are population and evolutionary genetics, but I'm also fascinated with history, um, ethnography, geography, um, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, I think that's probably why I'm on this podcast, because I, I am interested in Chinese history, and I do know a fair amount about population genetics and the genetics of China. Yes, so please check out Razib's blog post and his uh, podcast. I will put the links uh, in the show notes. Um, so without further ado, let's get into some ancient and modern Chinese genetics. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I mean, do you want to you wanna ask a question or you want me to just like start what we know in the broad sketch? Yeah, um, so you sent me uh, the, the very scholarly <laughs> notes of the Chinese population genetics. Uh, if you can just, uh, you know, uh, put it in layman's term <laughs> for the rest of us and just give us a, yeah, a very broad gen general outline and sketch. So uh, just assume everybody's novice, right? And yeah, 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 sure. So, um, you know, uh, you know, population genetics, as the the term implies, is the genetics of populations. And obviously, China has a large population. Um, over ninety percent, probably around ninety five percent, are ethnic Han Chinese, which is obviously defined by the language, um, whichever Chinese dialect they speak, and their self identity. Uh, and, you know, in the last five years or so, um, because of the rise of genomics and genetic technologies in China, Beijing Genomics Institute has been really big, for example, uh, there has been a fair amount of work on modern Chinese. And um, so we can test questions that we have. So, for example, is it true, as some people have asserted, um, that the Cantonese are genetically like the Vietnamese as opposed to the people of the Yellow River Plain, like, say, someone from Shandong? Or, um, you know, other people have asserted that there's a huge difference between people in the east and the west of China proper, from Sichuan to Zhejiang on the coast. And I apologize for my pronunciations. Um, my uh, kids are learning Chinese, and they always laugh uh, at my pronunciations, but uh, just go with that. Um, so in terms of these questions, I will say, like, what we know about the modern Han Chinese is... Um, as a population geneticist and as someone with an interest in Chinese history, I was surprised at how homogeneous they are. How much um, the Chinese of the North, the South, the East, and the West, the Han Chinese, are similar. And this indicates that they have been intermarrying 
and the populations have been mixing with each other for a long time, which kind of makes sense because Chinese don't really have a caste system. Um, you know, different clan groups intermarry with each other and whatnot. If you look at the genetic variation in China, it's very similar in a way to Europe in terms of most of the variation being dictated by geography. So people further away from each other are genetically more distant. And so people in the north of China are more similar to people in the north of China, people in the south of China, more similar to people in the south of China, and east and west, so forth, right? One thing that is maybe a little less intuitive, though, is that more of the variation is actually um, north-south than east-west. In fact, it is, I'm doing like the math quick in my head, it's about like, say, like five times more variation between north-south um, than east-west. So what I'm trying to get at is if you go from Shanghai to Sichuan, it's going to be a lot less genetic variation, a lot less um, genetic distance than if you go from, say, I don't know, Beijing to Guangdong. Okay, so most of the Chinese difference is north-south, not east-to-west. We could posit historical reasons, for example, during the um, downfall of the Ming Dynasty and the rise of the Manchus, Sichuan was highly depopulated. It was resettled from Hunan. I mean, that's one of the things that people have noticed. And so it could be that gene flow east-west is, um, you know, due to settlement after famine. They tended not to go south or north because people in the different latitudes, you know, they cultivate different crops. They don't have the skills. People east-west, though, they cultivate similar crops. So that, that could be a hypothesis that explains that. Another issue is um, the Han Chinese and Guangdong are, as I said, more similar to the Han Chinese. Um, uh, or No, I didn't say that, but it was a question that I was asking. Are more similar to the Han Chinese in North China than they are to the Vietnamese? Now, if you model it, you can see that the people in Guangdong are more similar to the Vietnamese. So there is looks like to be detectable mixture with local substrate. That's just a way of saying that some of the ancestors of the Han Chinese in the South were not Han Chinese. They were probably Dai people, Vietnamese, you know, proto-Vietnamese people, Ye people, like various other non-Han groups. And non-Han groups were flourishing as far north as the Yangtze River Valley in historical times, like before the rise of the Qin Dynasty, for example. Um, you know, those, those Chinese polities in the Yangtze River um, valley were, were, were semi-Chinese, right? So we know that people assimilate to Chinese identity, but there's also a genetic coherency. Now, when you go to the north of China, one of the interesting things that um, I have always noticed when I look at North Chinese um, genetic um, characteristics is they are shifted towards West Eurasians. Say like 1% to 5%, depending on the individual, depending on where they are from, they're shifted towards the people from you know Central Asia, Europe, you know, towards the West, Western people, as they would say in China, right? And so you don't see any of that in the South. So like, where does that come from? Like, you know, the, these are questions that need to be asked. So you see these like subtle differences that are consistent that you could associate with particular historical patterns. But the broad, the broad general scope um, for the contemporary Chinese is actually they're, they're relatively coherent. The genetic variation among the Han Chinese is in the range of what you would see among Northern Europeans. So like the difference between a Dutch person and someone from Poland is 
pretty equivalent to what you would see from like, say like, you know, North Chinese versus Central Chinese province, something like that. So you can think of Chinese as Northern Europeans in terms of how they relate to each other genetically. There's subtle differences, which people in China and outside of China notice, but they're actually relatively similar. And then most of the genetic variation is North-South. It's not East-West. So, I mean, that's what I would say about the contemporary stuff. And so, I mean, I don't know if you have any yeah. questions on that, Carl. Um, I can go to the ancient stuff, but yeah. Um, so I expected the North-South differentiation. You know, for a long time, people actually postulated that you know, the North and South uh, Chinese came from different source population. Um, one reason is historically, China actually have at least two cradles of civilization. There's a Yellow River Basin in the north and the Yangtze River Valley in the south. And in fact, the agriculture was first developed in the Yangtze River Valley when rice was uh, first independently uh, cultivated about 9,000 years ago. And, and so we know that the, the two river valleys always hosted uh, dense populations since ancient times. And uh, we also know um, historically, there was a push from the north to the south. Uh, there, there's, there's population migration, um, you know, where the, the ancestor of Han Chinese traditionally, in the traditional historiography, is considered to come from, you know, the Yellow River Basin. And as you mentioned earlier, you know, the, the, the push into Yangtze uh, River Valley only happened on a big big scale around um, just a little over 2,000 years ago. And and um, also uh, maybe a little bit of a history on the, <laughs> on the, on the um, testing for genetics. So, so in the, um, now we have the full access to the human genome, right? Like the every, um, we can, we can uh, test every part of the, the human DNA, but Back then, back in the old days, <laughs> which is not that long ago, I remember um, uh, initially was uh, really just studying um, the sex chromosomes, right? The 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 Y haplogroup, um, uh, the basically the Y chromosome that's only passed from the father to sons, and the mitochondria DNA that's only passed from the mother to daughters. Um, so, so when I was growing up in China, I learned that. Um, through genetic testing of sex chromosomes, there was um, um, uh, there was difference, difference and similarities among Chinese population. The similarity is that the in terms of uh, male dominated, uh, in, or not dominated, but male cro sex chromosome um, Y haplogroups, the distribution is uh, relatively uniform all across China from north to south. Um, so there's a patrilineage that's uh, that's shared all across China, but the mitochondria DNA that's passed from mother to daughter um, it's very different from the north to south. So so in the northern China plains uh, to versus like the the Yangtze River Valley, um, the mitochondria DNA has been pretty stable in these populations since like the ancient times, since the Neolithic times. Um, so it, it, so what it looks like was, you know, these kind of male uh, mediated migration from the north to south. 
And whereas, you know, the, the, the Han Chinese from the northern China plain just, just move into, to say, the Yangtze River Valley and further south into the Pearl River Valley around Guangdong, and they married local indigenous women and uh, such produce the offspring. So that, so my expectation has always been there will be uh, a big difference between the northern and the southern Chinese because, you know, at least uh, I, I thought, but but to my surprise is that I had expected in the south, the southern Chinese would have a lot more um, indigenous DNA component. But from uh, what you're saying is that's actually not true. It's uh, overall, it's pretty uniform. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, so I'd have to rerun the numbers, but off the top of my head, I think that the typical Cantonese, you can model them, and this isn't real, um, this is just a model, but you can model them as 75% Northern Han and 25% Vietnamese. So, I mean, they're obviously shifted towards the Vietnamese, right? Yeah. Uh, but they're still not that far from the Northern Han. And so here's um, one thing that I would say about the mtDNA and the Y, you're, you're roughly correct. Um, I think one way you could explain this is imagine a scenario where southern China and like when I say southern, let's say talk south of the Yangtze, like we know that like the Pearl River Delta and Fujian were, you know, settled in historic, well, in the last 2000 years, you have soldiers and officials coming down south, they take local women, right? They have offspring, the offspring are identified and raised as Han, albeit with uh, some indigenous characteristics, which can be seen in Cantonese culture, for example, they trace it to some of the tribal people that were there before. But now imagine that um, there's a new generation of soldiers and um, bureaucrats coming down from the north. Well, I mean, they need to have wives, and who, where are they going to get the wives from? Well, I mean, these, these women um, that are the daughters of the men that had come the previous generation. So you can have a succession of uh, migrations where the whole genome becomes much more Han as people from the north keep migrating, but the mitochondrial DNA remains indigenous. Does that make sense? And so, I mean, that... Yes, it does, but I'm still thinking, like, say, in case of Mexico, right? I mean, we know, like, Mexico had experience, uh, experiences uh, male-mediated migration from, say, Spain and Europe, mm -hmm. and, uh, and but nowadays, uh, I mean, on average, the, 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 the population genetics of, Mex uh, at least uh, the Mexican-Americans, it's about half-half, um, right? The, 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 it's about... 50% mm. European, 50% mm. indigenous. That, that's kind of what I was expecting. Yep. Right. Yeah, and I think, I, think, I think a better model would be Argentina, where the mitochondrial DNA is about half indigenous, but the overall genome is closer to, say, 15 or 20% indigenous. Oh, wow. And Argentina, unlike Mexico, is a nation that kept getting continuous European migration, and that migration was disproportionately male. Because, I mean, if you're going to go across the ocean to work, you're more likely to be a male. You know, it depends on the migration stream. Like, you know, that in New England, it was exceptional because that's one of the few migration streams where, like, whole families and communities in a really early period migrated. But in most of the New World, 
including the American South initially, it was mostly just men. And so, you know, when it's mostly men, they need to find partners. They're going to find partners with the local women. But once the first generation of uh, mixed women were born, there's local women. Those local women are already part European, and then they marry another European. So I think Argentina is the model that, that, you, that you would look at to explain the dynamic, which is a correct dynamic that you see of, like, relative homogeneity and unity of the Y, and then um, less homogeneity of the mtDNA. I do have to say, though, um, I, I don't think we understand the total details of how the North-South migration worked because I can imagine a scenario where due to you know invasions and conquests, population decline on the Yellow River Plain, that it was resettled in part from, say, the Yangtze, um, you know, during the Tang Dynasty, when China was unified again, the population increased, right? So you can imagine a scenario where there's actually reflux from the south back to the north. And um, the, the admixture that I see in North Chinese, I am pretty sure that it comes through Turks and Mongols, that it's not actually mostly... Western Eurasians, because the Turks and Mongols, they're about like, well, the Mongols in Mongolia are about like 10 to 15% West Eurasian, mm -hmm. right? So if you imagine that, that there are, uh, you know, people who are descended from Mongolic and Tungusic and Turkic people mm -hmm. in Northern China that were absorbed with the migration north after the reunification during the Tang, and it's just a hypothesis. I'm not saying that's the explanation, but I think that is a plausible model of how you get this definite West Eurasian shift all across the North China Plain, because I see it in a lot of individuals, like definitely Gansu, so it drops off the further east you go, but definitely Gansu, among the way, the few way samples I ha I've seen, there's definitely a minority of West Eurasian um, Y haplotypes. Um, R1A, which is often associated with Iranians, J, which is associated with Middle Easterners. So you do have these situations where there's male mediated migration to Northern China, and that's probably nomadic people some of whom have substantial admixture with West Eurasians. So that's a dynamic that's evident in North China. So when we're saying that, um, you know, for example, like, I don't know, like say in Fujian, there is zero, almost zero West Eurasian ancestry in, ancestry in Fujian, right? And so when you're saying Fujian, people can be modeled as, you know, a minority of their ancestry, a small minority is indigenous, and then they're mostly Han. And yet the people in the North, they have this like 5%, some of them, a lot of them have this 5% West Eurasian. So it's not those Han, it's the Han that lived 1,000 to 2,000 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. So the people in the North themselves have changed somewhat, I believe, mm -hmm. due to migrations from the outer fringe of China inward, and also from the south to the north, right? Right. So I read the report, and uh, I also took a note of the, uh, you know, the one, two, five, six percent uh, Western Eurasian component, and it talks about uh, mostly in the northwestern China. So we're talking about Gansu, Sanxi, and Sanxi, right? And and these are. Um, so I mean another another theory another uh, conjecture is that um, there actually have been intrusion of the Western Eurasian peoples into uh, further east historically like as far back as the uh, early Bronze Age um, you know we we now have uh, DNA evidence of of them uh, of settlements in Western Mongolia for example and and um, also through Chinese historical sources, we know that um, these people who some say they're Indo-European speaking, uh, uh, they, 
uh, populated the area uh, of what is now is Gansu. So Gansu is not um, a traditional Han homeland <laughs> per se until about 2000 years ago. So, so 2000 years ago, the Han dynasty um, pushed west and absorbed Gansu from the, from the Xiongnu who used to populate the region. And, and so we know that area used to be, you know, it was part of the, you know, the great Eurasian step and, and it received a lot of, um, or, or nowadays people just call it Silk Road, right? So there, there has been continuous population exchange along that belt. And and so there, there, uh, and another side note on the Yuezi people is that they, uh, migrated west, uh, driven away by Xiongnu, or the uh, supposedly ancestor of Hans, and they um, went to went through Xinjiang and the area now Central Asia, like area around Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and they went to went down to conquer uh, Greek cities in uh, Bactria, and and eventually. They founded uh, the famous Kusan Empire in northern India, you know, Pakistan, that area, and, and adopted Buddhism. And that's how we got the famous Gandhara art and, and with like all these uh, Greek influences. So, so we know that historically there, there have been Western Eurasian or Western Eurasian-like people present in northwest china even before his like before historical times even before like the mongol turkic invasion so so that that could explains that mixture um whereas that just doesn't present at all in the southern china and also another thing about um the less variation along the east west axis one reason i can think of is the the um the way the Chinese river system runs because both the Yellow River and the Yangtze River they run from west to east and in many ways they function not as a great barrier to human migration rather than as a highway right because it's a lot sometimes a lot easier just to travel on boats so the there has been continuous traffic since ancient times along you know the the rivers. So, so, I mean, that, that could also explain the less uh, population variation along the east-west axis. That, that's just my two cents. So, back to the expert. Yeah, no, um, that's, a, that's a definitely like a plausible hypothesis. Um, it could be right, um, this idea of the early, um, you know, Indo-European, I mean, it's, mo it's probably almost certainly Indo-European, um, even if it, th these people mixed with Turkic people later and those were the mediators. It was originally an Indo-European vector. So um, in any case, uh, that could be an explanation. So here is my reason for why I'm more skeptical of that than later Turkic and Mongol um, uh, mediation. And it's because the, Turk and the Turks and the Mongols, um, these and Tungusic, I mean, the, all these groups, like we use, we have modern names for them, but like these are all like related groups of people, right? Um, they had multiple periods, like say after the fall of the Han Dynasty, when they occupied the whole of the North China Plain, right? As opposed to just Gansu. So they would have had more of an impact. And the second thing is, um, I don't see, like, I mean, there's almost certainly trace West Eurasian ancestry, but I don't see West Eurasian ancestry in the South Chinese at all, mm -hmm. which to me suggests that when the Chinese migrated from the North, they didn't have it. 
Right. Does, that, does that make sense? And so this, the, the dynamics that you're talking about are very old. Um, these people were probably in Gansu by the Bronze Age. So they would have been around during the period of the ethnogenesis of the Han from um, the various Bronze Age cultures. And so, you know, and there is evidence of contact. You're exactly correct. Archaeologically, um, Christopher Beckwith believes that, um, in fact, that the Zhao might themselves have been influenced or originally an Indo-European tribe, um, you know, associated with the Rong and the Di, but I, that's a minority position. But in any mm -hmm. case, there is a fair amount of evidence historically, archaeologically for this contact. My only point is that I don't think that it was very impactful just because I don't see it in the South Chinese because it's so old, it should be present in the Southern Chinese lineages, you know? Um, so I think that it, 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 it became prominent after 2000 years ago um, because I think that the South Chinese, um, you know, much of South China was settled from the North before this admixture. So that's, that's the one thing that I would, I would say in relation to that. Um, I do think, you know, your hypothesis about the rivers, I mean, to me, that's easily the most, you know, viable explanation why there's east-west migration and gene, and also like even if there wasn't um, a famine, I also think like the rivers allow continuous gene flow, yes. so that there's you know marriage networks that are up and down the river valleys, and so this reduces the variation between the different components. And I mean that's the key. Like when you have marriage networks between populations, their genetic distance is going to decrease, and it's not going to increase at all. And so you can have a situation where all of Han speaking, like you know. Chinese speaking, you know, China, I mean, it sounds weird to say it that way, but Chinese speaking China is an integrated marriage network. And so it's keeping it from diverging very far. So when you look at some of the ethnic minority groups, a few of the ones in central China, like the Yi and the Tuja, I don't know how to pronounce it, the Shi, they're not that different than the Han. They probably intermarried with the Han and they contributed to the Han. But um, they tend to be different partly because they're en more endogamous. They have a smaller marriage network group and so they're starting to drift apart, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's one of the dynamics that, that you see. So that's what I would say to that. Okay, yeah, makes sense. All right, uh, <laughs> okay, we can <laughs> continue on. This is fascinating, by the way. I mean, this is like catnip for me. So, um, I, in fact, I um, one of the puzzle for me because um, I just started a, a new, basically, a new new podcast series on the Chinese history. Um, I, I started from the prehistory, the, the dawn of agriculture, and um, as I was talking about it, I got me thinking, right? Because uh, like there were multiple population centers in China in the Neolithic time and with very different peoples. I mean, we, we have the ancient DNA now. We, we tested for them from around, you know, 5,000 years ago. And, and at that time, there was significant difference, um, say, between people of uh, you know, the northern China plain in Yellow River Basin versus uh, Yangtze River Valley. Uh, but the, the, the amazing fact that is, is that, that, somehow, that somehow that difference disappeared, right? Like over time. Of course, China has a lot longer history of being like part of this, uh, 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 part of a, a centralized empire. So I think that probably helped with the population flow. Uh, I mean, you, certainly made the ease of travel among different parts of the empire and especially when uh 
like the, the government officials because uh, in China it's mandated that uh, the the Mandarin official who who passes imperial test they cannot serve in their own locality that that was done uh, intentionally to prevent like entrenchment of local interest so if if like a a, a son of local gentry who passed the imperial exam and became an imperial official he has to serve in a different part of China and 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 think that definitely also helped to mix population around a little bit Razi yeah um yeah yeah so um one thing that i i have said before is that uh the chinese people may have been created by the chinese empire right so um a, one of the dynamics that you have that that i was alluding to here is the demographic expansion out of these agricultural hurts um that's a real thing um china used to probably have a lot more population structure um in prehistory uh, some of this is recorded and alluded to in the writings, and we have some evidence now from ancient DNA that you're alluding to. Uh, and so you have this demographic expansion and like rapid replacement of other groups or assimilation. So this is what you see in the Y chromosome. The other dynamic, which you're just alluding to, is the fact that China had a bureaucratic cultural system, um, a state system that spanned this huge geography that integrated different populations together. So you were talking about um, the Lower Yangtze Valley and the Yellow River Valley as like the two hearths. Um, we know that, I mean, probably the Yellow River Valley is the origins of what we consider Chinese, Kwa Chinese culture, right? But the Yangtze Valley might have contributed something demographically insofar as if the two integrate um, into a, you know, we call it panmictic in population genetics, randomly mating. It doesn't have to be totally randomly mating, but if they integrate enough, they create a common population that then expands. You can't differentiate mm. the signal too much, right? Um, so you, you can imagine a situation where males from, say, the Shang Dynasty period mixed with these people in the Yangtze, and so there's a lot of mixture, and the Y chromosome is mostly from the Shang Dynasty period, from the, that upper, you know, the Yellow River area, but the whole genome could be mixed around in, in diverse ways. And then there was a later demographic expansion, and the local differentiation and the local tribes that were assimilated were kind of erased, partly just through these marriage networks that you're talking about. And so it's actually like... Um, it's not quite rude, but it's a machine with multiple different f parts creating and enforcing homogenization. And one of the global dynamics that we have seen over the last, you know, 10 years of ancient DNA is the last 10,000 years have actually seen a lot of admixture and homogenization, probably driven by the emergence of meta-ethnic identities, so identities that are pan-tribal, also trade, mom, the use of horse to migrate. These things have like homogenized large swaths of Eurasia to a much greater extent than they were probably during the Pleistocene. Right. And this includes China. Very, uh, very interesting uh, factoids I picked up from the report you sent me was that uh, the comparison between China and Europe, uh, because Europe has been extensively studied the European genetics. I used to follow, I mean, I follow your blog and the Eurogene blog, um, and and that we know today Europe, modern Europeans can be roughly modeled as uh, convergence of three populations, the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, um, the farmer, Neolithic farmers migrating from Middle East uh, or Near East, specifically Anatolia, and uh, then a further um, a further population that moving from from like the 
uh, the, the, the step, right? The, the, um, some, some people call it the Indo-European component. And what is interesting is that compared with China, um, you know, of course, you, you know, there's, there's large genetic distance between the European and the Chinese, but among the three source population for, for, um, for the Europeans, that, that the Chinese are closer to the mytholithic hunter-gatherers of old Europe um, uh, than, say, the, 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 the newcomers and the Neolithic farmers that moved in from Middle East or the, uh, mm. you know, the, 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 the other component. Go ahead. Yeah, um, so yeah, there, there, there's some subtleties here. Uh, definitely, they don't, the Chinese are most distant from the Neolithic farmers. I, there is evidence of actually like really, really ancient contact between the ancestors of West Eurasians and East Eurasians. And I'm saying the ancestors because we don't know where these people were, you know. But um, there is evidence of like even Pleistocene contacts. There's evidence of it looks like some sort of gene flow from a population related to modern East Eurasians, uh, of which the Han Chinese are the most you know representative and largest group, um, into Mesolithic Europe. Um, within, say, like the last 15,000 years. Um, in terms of the Indo-European step component, that's a little more complicated. Um, I'm not sure if that's necessarily correct, that they're more distant than the Western hunter-gatherers. And part of the issue is, um, part of the issue here is, it looks like there is some evidence of ancient North Eurasian, which is a very distant, like, Paleo-Siberian group, as you know, that contributed a fair amount to the early Indo-Europeans. Um, it's, it's deeply diverged from the Western hunter-gatherers, but, um, so, like, let's say, like, 35, 40,000 years ago, like, uh, just only a little bit after the East Eurasians diverged from the Western Eurasians. Uh, this group seems to have contributed a substantial amount to the Indo-Europeans, as you know, but um, there is evidence, which hasn't been, like, published, but it's in the supplements of some of these papers, that there was gene flow into northern East Asia, into, like, say, where the Yellow River, you know, Valley, Mongolia, these areas, from these Paleo-Siberians that is causing some affinity there. So, um, I, you know, for your listeners, this is getting into the weeds, and it's complicated, and a part, of the issue, part of the issue is the terms that we use today don't mean nearly as much in the past because the past is, con it's like, if you consider like modern populations threading together different lineages and those lineages themselves are threaded together and bifurcated from other lineages, imagine like the threads coming together and coming apart, coming together and coming apart. And yeah, like they're all ultimately like the same thread that goes back to out of Africa, mm -hmm. but you know, the fabrics that come together are totally different with different patterns, right? And so, you know, you got to be careful about the terminology. I mean, should we get to uh, Tianyun, the 40,000-year-old sample? Yes, 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 please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there is some ancient DNA with mtDNA and other things from, like, Bronze Age China, which indicates that um, the, I think, like, the term is the Eralutu culture. Did you talk about that? Uh, sorry, the, the what culture? The Eralatau culture, it's in like, um, it's basically in, in um, Henan, Shaanxi, Henan, and it's the, it's the culture before the Shang dynasty, okay? It's prehistoric, we don't know about it. And so there is some DNA from that culture. It looks like those people are similar to like later Chinese, at least in their Y and the MT DNA. Mm -hmm. um, so it's not like new people came in and 
you know, became Chinese. Because in, in Europe and India, you see massive turnover during the Bronze Age. It doesn't look like China was quite like that, at least the North China Plain. It looks like agriculture, it, it looks like agriculture started indigenously and there was demographic expansion from these agricultural groups. So China is as if Neolithic farmers had not been overwhelmed by Indo-Europeans. You know, that's that's one way you could you could imagine it, right? Indo-Europeans were obviously on the edge of China, but they didn't demographically overwhelm it, and they barely, I, I believe they barely impacted it until later, which is through the Mongols, but that was an earlier conversation. Um, so we have, we, have, we have that dynamic going. Tianyun is a sample from Tianyun Cave. Um, it's kind of from, like, north-central China, I think. And um, this is the most ancient genome we have from East Eurasia. There's a huge lacunae, um, huge gaps of... Uh, Chinese um, ancient DNA. Um, Kiyomi Fu is trying to work on this. I think she's a Fudan, um, if I remember off the top of my head. And, you know, it just hasn't been published. I don't know what's going on, but I will tell you the Tian Yun, you can already see that this individual is more closely related to East Eurasian and Native American peoples 40,000 years ago. What that is telling you is the people of East Eurasia and West Eurasia, they separated more than 40,000 years ago, which we kind of knew. And, you know, the interesting thing is this Tianyun individual is probably not the ancestor of modern Chinese, but it's definitely it's definitely related to predominantly to the ancestor of modern Chinese, if that makes sense. It's, so it's probably like a sister lineage to modern proto-modern Chinese. So that means that, like, there has been a pretty deep... Um, continuity in China going back to the first settlement, which is in contrast to Europe, where there have been multiple replacements, um, and South Asia, where there's been a lot of admixture of different populations, and Southeast Asia, which was settled from what is today Southern China within the last you know 4,000 years, and the native peoples have been totally replaced, right? Or in Africa, where the Bantu expansion has totally reshaped the, the continent south of the Sahara within the last 4,000 years. So, um, you know, we don't have enough DNA to make definitive conclusions, but it does look like the Tianyun individual um, is not that different from from modern, I mean, it is quite different from modern Chinese, because it was like 40,000 years ago, right? But um, it looks like, compared to all the other ancient DNA that we have from a contemporary time period, it's the best candidate to be ancestral to modern East Eurasians, which makes sense, because it's in China, right? Um, and so, I mean, so, you know, this is suggesting that if you just look at geography, when modern humans left Africa or the fringe of the Near East, and they expanded, they separated into two streams, one that went kind of like north into Siberia and western and into Europe along like the fringes and stayed in the Near East, and then another that continued through South Asia, probably split south, um, became Oceanians um, very early on, probably like, you know, around like, 45 to 50,000 or years or earlier, split into the southern stream and the northern stream. The northern stream went into China. Eventually, some of these people mixed with Paleo-Siberians and moved into the New World, as we know, right? But So you have like these early deep differentiations across Eurasia that are defined by geography, right? So, so like um, the ancestry of people in Papua and Australia, the indigenous people, is closer to that of China than it is to Europeans or Middle Easterners, because they are part of the stream that kept going eastward into Eurasia. Um, the ancestry of people in South Asia that's not related to West Eurasians, 
um, that indigenous, probably likely indigenous component is clo more closely related to the people in China than it is to the people in Europe because, you know, it's part of the Eastern push. And in a way, like, I mean, you know, everybody in Australia and China and the New World, like, they have ancestors that had to go through India. That's just yeah. how it happened, probably. Um, and so, like, these are, like, very deep divergences, but they show, like, kind of the migration out of Africa period in some areas, like in India, there was like reflux and other things going on. Whereas like West Eurasians went in and mixed and changed everything a lot. So India is like a transition and actually it's more like it's it, it, average. Indian is a little bit more shifted to West Eurasians now um, than East Eurasians. But you know, 10,000 years ago, it would have been the other way around. They'd be more shifted towards East Eurasians. Right. Um, and in Europe, you have populations that are more similar to East Eurasians than they would have been, you know, 20 or 30,000 years ago. And then you have, like, weird things that we don't really understand. So there's a sample from, like, very like 35,000 years ago from a cave, I think, in France. And unlike every other early Pleistocene individual, that individual shows shared ancestry with Tianyun. Wow. Right? And nobody knows why. Like, here's my, my hypothesis for why that could be. It could be that even in the Near East, the different tribes were already separating into different groups. And some of them went north and west. Some of them went east. And um, it wasn't like a, a vast amalgamated differentiated horde. And so one of the ones that went west had some mixture from a tribe that went east. And Does that make sense? Yes, and I was just thinking also, um, you know, a lot of times when the human migration is modeled as simply one pulse or, or like unidirectional flow, but uh, in, in actual history, it's a lot more messier because humans move in all directions. You know, sometimes they move east and sometimes they move back. And, 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 and you know, people, people just circulate wherever they, you know, find food, shelter, and what better hunting ground. So, so they, they're, they're they're not necessarily just always going one direction. You know, we know there's backflow back into Africa, for example, right? And I'm sure they're also the same, same with, you know, people wandering east and then coming back west, you know, going through Central Asia to Europe maybe. And then so, so there's all kind of mixture that's, that's happening and that we're just, trying, we're just finding out right now through the sampling of various ancient DNA. Yeah, and, and one thing I would say is, the less ancient DNA you have, um, the more likely your model is to miss major features. And we just know this from Europe because we have a lot of ancient DNA. In the initial period, the models were coarse and they weren't, um, they were in the right direction, but they were so incomplete that they led to like just spurious conclusions. And so as we have more ancient DNA in East Asia and South Asia, um, we will understand a lot more about. Um, the details of what happened. So um, I will say, for example, that um, we have a lot of ancient DNA from Southeast Asia for various reasons. The indigenous people of Southeast Asia are, um, you know, I think the, the whole Habanian culture or something. Anyway, like they were like the hunter-gatherers, right? Um, the, the only people who are like the pure representatives of those people or similar to them are probably the people of the Andaman Islands. Like even the people of the Philippines that are indigenous, they call them Negritos, have mixed with the Austronesians. So all of this, all of this like change happened in the last 5,000 years with rice farmers, with the Austroasiatics probably coming from the highlands of, uh, you know, Yunnan, that area. And then the Austronesians were probably more from Taiwan 
month, you know, um, and then you have, uh, you know, other people with like, you know, different relationships, like the Thai that came during historical period, all of these migrations southward, um, you can say that, you know, most Southeast Asians are like, you know, maybe like the Indonesians would be like 25% descended from these, you know, Australo-Melanesian, which is just like a made up term, but it's basically like Pleistocene hunter-gatherer people and 75% farmer. The Vietnamese is more farmer, less Australo-Melanesian in part because there was Chinese migration into Vietnam, you know? Um, and then Cam Cambodians probably like the most Australo-Melanesian just, you know, for various reasons. Um, anyway, so there's stuff like that. And then there's also later Indian migration, which confuses it. I, I'm not going to get into that. Um, but, you have this dynamic. Oh, I mean, I'm, I'm in Bali right now, but I am going to get into that a little bit. Okay. I, I'm in Bali right now, and it's very obvious to me, just visually, how much, you know, Indian influence is in Southeast Asia. I mean, both in, in terms of uh, religion, culture, and even people, you know, I mm -hmm. can see it yeah. <laughs> in yeah. the faces of people. Yeah, I mean, you know, until recently... Um, in the scholarly literature, it had been claimed that the Indianization of Southeast Asia was a was a matter of uh, of of just cultural diffusion, and that there wasn't much of a demographic impact. I've looked pretty closely at the data, and it's pretty obvious that the demographic impact in many areas um, was pretty significant. And I'm talking about, say, like in Cambodia, um, where. You know, I mean, that's pretty far from India. Like, we're not talking like Malaysia, which had a lot of colonial Indians coming, um, or Myanmar, Burma, which was close enough to the Bay of Bengal that you could imagine migration. Cambodia, there has been no colonial evidence of Indians. But, for example, Indian R1A um, lineage is found at like, you know, 5 10% in Cambodia. So that's giving you a general sense that it's not 1%, it's closer to 10% in, in, in a lot of Southeast Asia. And I mean, that's not insignificant. Um, it's much higher than, um, except for maybe outside of Thailand, um, it's much higher than Chinese ancestry in the indigenous people, um, because Chinese ancestry has been relatively late, except with the exception probably of Vietnam, right? And so you have these um, complicated complicated mixes and it's it, you know we're just describing them verbally but I, I brought this up because if you look at the most ancient of the austroasiatic people who did not mix with the um, indigenous australo-melanesians it looks like they themselves are a compound of mixtures of very differentiated people in the highlands of south china mm. so there are records of dark-skinned people apparently in Yunnan and other areas. So, like, you know, it, it looks like modern China in a way has homogenized and transformed the diversity of ancient China in certain ways that we probably will only get a sense of with ancient DNA. It looks like, say, the, the Dai people um, of China that, that have no, that have not, they don't have Australo-Melanesian ancestry really, but it doesn't look like they are just like North Chinese. Like they have something that's deeply diverged, just like North Chinese themselves probably have Paleo-Siberian and this West Eurasian ancestry. Um, so, you know, East Eurasians, yeah, they're pretty homogenous. I think partly just because of like the marriage networks and the Chinese bureaucratic state. But if you dig deeper and as we get more and more ancient DNA, you're going to see the threads coming apart. Yeah into these distinct peoples and probably we we will be able to identify particular peoples in the chinese historical record with these population genetic clusters which like thank god we have a you know pretty pretty like you know detailed histories from the chinese themselves unlike some other people like in south asia we're going blind 
you know? Well, I mean, we have, like, the epics and the Mahabharata and the Ramayana and the Vedas, but, um, you know, we don't have, like, you know, physical records. We can't, like, trans we can't translate the Indus Valley script. So, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm very optimistic. I'm very excited. Um, I'm going to be entirely frank, frank and think that, say that I think one of the reasons we don't have DNA from ancient China right now is some sort of weird political consideration. I don't think it's a straightforward thing where it's like, oh, they're going to show that the Chinese were totally different. I don't think that's what it is. I think they're trying to figure out how to spin it. Okay, I'm going to be entirely honest. Um, and I, don't, I, I think they don't know how. I think I think they must be sitting because we have lots of ancient DNA from Southeast Asia. If we have lots of ancient DNA from Southeast Asia, why don't we have it from China? It's it's even warm. It's even cooler. Um, you know, I actually, Fudan University in particular has been singled out. I know on Chinese social media because uh, people are saying, "Why you guys uh, spend all your time doing frivolous research, like trying to figure out?" who are the modern descendant of the Three Kingdoms warlords, Hao Cao, then, you know, trying to figure out the, the, the more, they're more interesting stuff, like the, the, the deep, um, popu uh, the Chinese ancient population structures, right? <laughs> but yeah, they, they, I, 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 one hand it's, it's understandable that they're doing it as kind of like a, a population, like a publicity stuff, you know, like, cause everybody's interested in, Three Kingdoms in China and Cao Cao is very popular, uh, but at the same time, you bring a very valid question. You know, there's China has a large population of the of these uh, population geneticists, and and the, China has a large, you know, like they, they can conduct large sampling size um, tests, and and yeah, we we have yet to see the kind of detailed. Uh, reports that we have from, say, from Europe, you know, or or even from Southeast Asia, yeah. But but I, yeah, I point out Southeast Asia. I point out Southeast Asia because the scientific infrastructure there is weaker, and ancient DNA should actually preserve less well. So the lack of results in China is a result in and of itself that is trying to tell you something, and I don't think it's something scientific. Well, I'm I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, I, we're we're seeing now uh, like slowly more and more reports coming out, and I I do hope you know we can see more in the future. Uh, but I, I want to take this op opportunity also to point it out uh, to debunk some <laughs> old theories. Um, it's so, so like you pointed out, the Tianyuan Man, which is found in the Tianyuan Cave near Beijing, um, it is related to modern East Asians and, uh, you know, as well as Native Americans. And so back when my grandpa was growing up, right, so that would be like the 1920s, uh, back then, you know, because the influence of the uh, Western archaeology and also the popularity of the Aryan invasion theory, um, what they were taught in school back then, uh, and my, my, my grandfather was a teacher, so what he actually also taught in school is that um, the civilization originally came from from the West to China, from, from Middle East, from the Fertile Crescent, you know, agriculture, and then chariots spread to China because Song Dynasty which is the first dynasty in China we have archaeological evidence for, they were known for their use of chariots, right? So the reasoning is, well, chariot, people don't reinvent the wheel, right? So <coughs> chariot was uh, first arose in the, in the West, so it must come through to China through the, you know, the Silk Road. And then, then by extension, people were making some crazy uh, 
theory that the Song rulers were themselves, uh, you know, some even some kind of Indo-European people from the West, and they, you know, brought this new culture into China, right? Because Song Song Dynasty was a very well developed, uh, very well developed bronze culture, right? Which is kind of a shift from the the previous mm. um, archaeological finds that we have. Like there's now a, still a huge controversy around um, the, the 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 Chinese recorded Chinese dynasty before the Song Dynasty. Because in the Chinese history book, we're told the, the history start with the Xia Dynasty and then it was replaced by the Song. But we we right now we there's a lot of a controversy on the archaeological evidence for for Xia Dynasty. Right. What we what do we, we do have is. We have the the Song Dynasty ruins, and, and based on Song Dynasty ruins, it has very well developed bronze culture. You know, we had chariots, and so back in the nineteen twenties, people, especially a lot of Western archaeology was uh, uh, archaeologists was proposing this idea that you know the Chinese civilization came from outside; it came from West Asia. Uh, West Western Eurasia. Uh, back back then, uh, I I don't think they even talked about the 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 Indo-European uh, genesis in the steppe. I mean, they, they, they were still thinking like everything come from Middle East, from the Fertile Crescent, right? So so this, so mm. and, and that idea mm. still lingers on. That that I, there's still some people even in China says, oh yeah, you, you, you subscribe to the idea that maybe the Song culture came from the West, but um, from the most recent genetic studies that we know from all the Song uh, human remains that they are just Chinese. <laughs> we don't have we don't have much evidence mm -hmm. of like say a Western mm -hmm. Eurasian intrusion uh, yeah around that time. So I, I mm -hmm. just like to point that out that that from the, Yeah. Go ahead. Well so yeah, let me. Can I? Go, I mean, like, I will differentiate between certain things. So there's certain, there's cultural diffusion where you take a cultural package in totality and transplant it, and it's brought by people. So I do think the Indo-Aryans came into South Asia. They brought their language. They brought their um, horse cult. They brought their you know mythology. They brought their chariots, um, all from the steppe in totality. Right. On the other hand, I do think it's highly plausible, and from what I know probable that some elements of chariot design and manufacture spread into China from Central Asia, just like it spread into the Middle East and it spread into Europe. And this isn't as this could be some, you know, artisans, a few people, but really it's more of you see a cultural um, artifact that is so useful that you copy it or you imitate it immediately. So by analogy, think about the gun. Japan, before the Tokugawa, had a massive gun manufacturing industry because they saw how useful the gun was. And so it's not like Europeans migrated to Japan and they were making all the guns. It was the Japanese immediately saw the gun. They figured out the engineering really quickly. It wasn't that difficult. Um, so you know, we know in ancient Egypt that the earliest form of... Uh, writing and certain types of architecture look like to have been influenced by Mesopotamian uh, motifs, but they quickly went in their own direction. And it wasn't that they actually even copied Mesopotamia as much as they were 
triggered by the idea of writing or the idea of particular types of monumental architecture, and then they did their own form. I think the Chinese might, in the early period at least, be evidence of the latter in certain cases. So I think chariots um, are probably the best case. I'm not sure about writing, because writing we know um, was invented independently by the Maya, uh, that are not in the old world at all, right? So we know that like this sort of like notation could imagine independent can emerge independently. I think that's a case where I'm not sure. Um, with the you know we have the oracle bones and other things, yeah. and like it's not like the Central Asians came with literacy, right? Um, but with the chariots, um, that's one case where it looks like it was such a good invention. It spread rapidly without people. We know this happened with certain types of bows that spread to the new world actually 1,500 years ago before Columbus. But it seems like they went. Across, up through Siberia, and they didn't spread too much with people, like a little bit, but bows spread all across the New World um, just because like, there's, there's certain types of bows that were much better and all this stuff, so I, I think that, that influence is real. But I think there is some connection to the West, um, but demographically, I don't think the West Eurasian impact between say, I don't know, the Pleistocene, like who knows what happened with the Paleo-Siberians, like that's a different issue, it's a whole different landscape, but during the Holocene, after the Ice Age, the Western impact in China, I think, predominantly dates to the period after the fall of the Han Dynasty and up to the Mongol Mongol period, probably mostly the the Dong to the to the Mongol period. There was interactions with people like we know a lot of Sogdians arrived during the Dong Dynasty, right? Yeah, and we know there are a lot of Sogdians, right? And so like that's that's one group. We know that the Mongols brought a ton of Central Asians. A lot of these are Turkic, and these Turkic people themselves are admixed with West Asians, but some of them are Persians or Iranians, mm -hmm. and so they would bring West Eurasian ancestry. So I think most of that is during that period, but I think the cultural impact could be earlier. Um, I think some of it almost certainly is earlier, and it's because we know that there's these like Central Asian um, nomadic groups that moved across the steppe from China all the way into the Pannonian Plain, Hungary, um, very rapidly over a generation. And they kind of have this like international, it's, it's like they had a maritime confederacy on the edges of the steppe where they became more fertile. So the Cassidians, we see the Scythians going from, you know, the Volga, the Volga, Volga steppe all the way east into Mongolia. And as they went east, they mixed with the native like Tungusic, Altaic people, mm -hmm. and they became more East Asian. And some of these Scythians went back west. Right. And so they brought some of the East Asian with them, right? And so I think... Um, we can we can imagine a scenario with the chariot in particular where the Shang might have been influenced by the ancestors of the Wuja that you were talking about mm -hmm. in Gansu. Yes. And they might have imitated imitated just like the Native Americans took to the horse almost immediately when the Spanish showed up. Yep. I mean you see the horse and you're like Okay, like, get on that and, like, you know, drive your enemies before you. That's just, like, yeah. light bulb, right? And so you can imagine a situation where that happened. And so you see, like, okay, the, the you know, it has Chinese characteristics, but this is, you know, this is like a Western chariot with Chinese characteristics, right? On the other hand, genetically and linguistically and in terms of, say, their religion, they can be totally indigenous, which they seem to be. Yes. I mean, I'm not arguing for uh, independent invention of chariot in China itself. I, I, I think the Gang example you use is very, probably a, a very close model because, you know, the Portuguese did travel to Japan and 
what you know the when the Japanese saw the Portuguese handling the Arquebus, uh, they were very impressed. So so they immediately bought some guns and then start to reverse engineer them and and then quickly you know making even better guns themselves. So so I think that's a, a much more plausible model because as we now know there there's no uh, population re large scale population replacement not anywhere the scale that uh, was ha happening in Europe or, or, or South Asia. And, mm -hmm. and, and um, I'm still going to stick to my <laughs> theory about uh, the, 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 the long-standing linkage through the Silk Road because uh, that, that six, five, six percent Western Eurasian structure that was found in Northern Chinese was primarily, I, I look at the report, it was primarily Northwest China, not, not the entire Northern China, but, but, you know, Gansu, Sanxi and Sanxi. So, so all the three provinces that was shifted toward the West. Right and and uh, like a Mongol because Mongol took over all of China and and you you would think that that distribution would be more uniform say across the entire northern China plains uh, because you know Mongol mm -hmm. didn't just come through Gansu or 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 Sanxi they came through Beijing they came through Hebei they came through Shandong they were everywhere mm -hmm. and and, and mm -hmm. so. I, yeah. I still think that uh, that Western Eurasian component was not necessarily just from like one pulse, right? Like it, it was probably uh, there was contact from like way earlier from from early Bronze Age, but it, it kind of continued, uh, you know, kind of continued and persisted into historical times, you know, into Tang Dynasty with mm -hmm. the Sogdians and and reinforced with the Mongols and Tur Tur Turkey conquered. All right, I, I don't want to I don't want to litigate this too further because like I think like your listeners are going to be like, why are they arguing about this? Because like this is narcissism, this is narcissism of small differences. Um, but I, I you know I, from what I've seen, the Y chromosomes tend to be R one A, which is more associated with Iranian peoples, and R one B is associated with the older Tokarian type peoples. Um, so we don't know if they usually were like Iranian or Tokarian or like admixed with those people, and they're actually you know Altaic. Who knows? I mean, probably they were more. Iranian actually, but um, if there were more of the step people really early on, I would expect to see more R1B than I think I do, but I don't have right. enough data because just because like it's going to be a small number of samples anyways, because it's not very much admixture right. anyway. So that is how you would evaluate that question because the really old stuff seems to have been in R1B males, um, that paternal lineage, and the Iranians are the ones who brought R1A. In the Mongols, I tend to see R1A, which indicates that they had interaction mm. with Scythians, Iranian steppe right. nomads, right? And, um, in the in in the Tarim Basin, you see both R one A and R R one B, and the R one B is probably due to the earlier Tokarian migra migration that was as early as five thousand yep. years ago. So that was a really long time ago. And then you see R one A, and the, the southern Tarim Basin was populated by Iranian tribes. Like so, so uh, I think like Khotan was Khotan was um, yep. Iranian. It was Saka yeah. Iranian. And then you have yeah, and Turfan was still Tokarian. So it's like you have this like complicated. Um, we will know the answer soon. I do believe that's true. Oh, I, I, I'm not saying that the, the Gansu component was from the, the ancient, uh, the Tokarians. Mm -hmm. I was saying it's, it's not from 
a single pulse, right? It's, it's a continuous because there were Tarkarians, there's Scythians, <laughs> later there were Turko Mongols, there were there were there were, there were Sogdians, right? There's these Persian Arab merchants coming through. I mean, it's 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 a continuous reinforcement. That that's why there was that persistent five percent. That that is just my 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 two cents. <laughs> I'm just throwing it out there, but uh, I defer to your expertise. <laughs> No, no. I mean, we'll figure it out. I mean, ultimately, what do the data say, right? So, I mean, that's that's where we're at. It's a great position to be at. Um, it's a great time to be interested in the topic. And um, you know, Leibniz, the well, Gottfried uh, William Le Gottfried Leibniz used to say that like someday we'll have a computer, and instead of having arguments and like going back and forth, we can just say, "Let us calculate." And we're coming close to that. We're coming close to that stage in population genetics. Like when people say, "Well, you know, like." South Chinese are more like Vietnamese. I just say, let us calculate and see what the PCA says. I'll just pull up my data sets and like run it, yeah. you know, or I'll run model-based clustering. I'll do, I'll do various things to test these hypotheses that people present, and then I'll present the plots and say, this is what the plots say. Yeah. That's it, you know? That's the stage we're at. Yes. Yes. So any, any concluding, concluding thoughts? Um, you know, the concluding thought is probably what I started out with. Um, I am, I was surprised how little structure there is in China, um, among the Han Chinese. I suspect that it's a combination of factors of like, you know, ancient demographic expansion, um, the imperial period of just like mixing between different provinces, and then also metapopulation dynamics where you have like famines and places were repopulated from other provinces. So um, I think that that's the explanation, um, which is like, you know, multiple different things going on. Um, in terms of other things, which we didn't talk about, because I think it's like outside the purview of this, um, physical characteristics, I think probably have changed somewhat too, due to selection. Um, we know natural selection is continuing in many populations. So um, the, uh, things like the epicanthic fold, which is associated with northern Chinese in particular, and lesser yeah. extent southern, um, you know, dry, dry earwax, other things like that look like they've been under selection since the mm. Pleistocene. They may have increased in frequency. Chinese probably have gotten lighter skinned over time. We don't really know why. Um, it could be sexual selection, it could be something else. Um, so uh, one of the um, things that I think we'll find out is that during the Pleistocene, even though the people in the region of modern China are mostly um, descended from those people, they might have looked very different. They might have looked more like the Ainu, you know? I think the Ainu might be what East Asians looked more like, and there's been, like, recent changes. We don't know why. Um, and so I think that's one of the things that we need to investigate. Also, um, I have mentioned to people the fact that China has met much greater diversity of, diversity of flora and fauna, I mean, especially flora, than Europe. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons why is that the ice sheets in Europe were occupying so much of uh, the tundra basically and the ice sheets were occupying more than some there was like fewer refuges because the mediterranean was to the south blocking them yeah. china had more more geographic depth I, I mean in military terms you say strategic depth where it's like you know the ecosystems retreat to southern china and then they expanded so it was like north south expansion and there's more preservation of the biodiversity um i wonder if that's also true of the people where, you know, it doesn't look like there's those extreme bottlenecks in China, in the Pleistocene, as occurred with European Mesolithic hunter-gatherers, where there's just, like, lots of extinction constantly. Mm -hmm. I think in China, you might have a situation where if it got too cold, the people on the northern fringe died, but the people on the southern fringe didn't, and there was a southern fringe. There was no Mediterranean Sea to the south. Yeah. Like, there's a vast expanse of, you know, all the way out to the Pearl River Delta, which was probably, you know, more temperate, deciduous back then, but it certainly wasn't 
ice cold, you know? So um, I think one of the things in the future that we will see for Pleistocene ancient DNA is that China, um, one of the reasons there's more continuity in China than Europe is China had a larger base population of hunter-gatherers because it's more geographically diverse and more ecologically buffered from the inclement um, conditions of the Ice Age, especially the dry cold spells. Mm. So that is, that is my prediction. That was my prediction. You heard it here first. <laughs> okay, here you have it, folks. Uh, I, I'm very, as I said, I'm very excited for uh, the, the continual new results coming coming out. I mean, before, uh, most of the genetic studies are pretty European centers. That's just because that's where we have the best data. And, you know, that's where the geneticists have been focused their efforts on. And now we're finally starting to see um you know that that effort is being devoted elsewhere right like like all, all these chinese data coming out all these data from the the rest of the world i i i'm very i'm very excited and i mean I, i'm just this is this is the for me this is catnip and i can geek on this for hours well you know what they say seek knowledge even unto china <laughs> okay, I think that's uh, with that hadith. Uh, I think that's a good point to to wrap it up. Um, th thank you again, Razib, for coming onto the show, uh, and we would like you to have you back in the future to um, talk about any new developments or just anything that that you might find. Oh, yeah, yeah. interesting because yeah. I, I find you a very interesting person and very knowledgeable to talk to so you know we can we can just like for sure man whenever you want we can just get a, like a geek out going well I mean you know um, next time there is um, when the ancient DNA finally gets published let's do a part two excellent great suggestion yeah definitely alright All right. take it easy man okay thank you very much Razib bye uh, so everybody that's Razib Khan uh, a geneticist and uh uh, polymath uh, we'll, I will put his uh, blog and uh, and podcast in the show notes and uh, thank you again for listening signing out bye bye <laughs>